Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. Uh, this week we will be releasing an episode of Africans Against the World. Uh, this week we will be talking about Cyril of Alexandria. He was the Archbishop of Alexandria, put into exile several times in his life for his defense of uh, Nicaea and his belief about the two natures of Christ. And so he is a very interesting figure. He also fits our general discussion of how African resolve shaped the Christian church. And so I want to con commend uh, Cyril to you all in this episode and, um, and his defense of the faith. We'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about um, the two natures of Christ. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be divine? And I think some of the difficulty of reading some of these ancient authors is in the very fact that we don't often think philosophically or theologically about humanity and divinity, what those terms mean. Um, and and so how would it be that Christ could be part of both? Because as soon as you want to talk about uh, the person of Jesus uh, Christ being both divine and human, you have to think about what those terms mean. So we deal we deal a little bit with that. It gets a little bit heady, um, and uh, but I hope that it is helpful and beneficial, and we can see how this very influential and important part of Christianity is articulated by an African church father. Um, so this comes to influence theology for the next several thousand years. Even those churches that uh, some of whom don't have the same uh, explanation of and acceptance of Chalcedon still look to Cyril as a as an important. Um, church father. So um, so he's very critical in various aspects of, of the development of Christian theology in different directions, both um, in, in Western Europe and in Africa uh, and, and Asia. So I hope that you enjoy this. Um, and as you saw maybe on Facebook, I will also have an interview up with Vince Bantu, Dr. Vince Bantu, professor of church history uh, at Fuller Theological Seminary, and uh, he recently wrote a book called A Multitude of All Peoples, um, and so we, we talk about that book and a little bit about his passion, so be looking out for that. Uh, please rate us and review us on iTunes, um, and maybe like us on Facebook, and uh, let me know what you think, uh, especially what you think of the new format with more like interviews, author interviews, um, if that's uh, interesting to you all. Um, this this one will be a little bit more like some other podcasts, um, on being or um, I don't know what others that people listen to in theology, but where they just interview authors. So I'd like to do a few of those every now and then um, to spice in the uh, to spice up the stream a little bit. Uh, sorry, this went a little long. Thanks again. Let's uh, let's pray to get started. Would anyone else like to pray for us, or I can pray and we get started. However, you... no. Okay, um, I will I pray. pray. Oh, thanks. Holy God, thank you for a beautiful day, a beautiful weekend. We thank you for uh, uh, the start of a new week to come together as Christians in your house to worship you and to uh, uh, hear your word proclaimed, the teaching that we receive this morning. I pray, Father, will be, uh, or if we've already heard it, that it will be edifying and convicting to us. We thank you for this class and thank you for all the work that Chad has put into it and is putting into it, and we just pray that you will... Uh, your spirit will uh, be amongst us today as we learn and understand uh, the lives of early Christians who uh, uh, proclaimed your gospel in, in a hostile environments and uh, were early pioneers of what it looked like to be authentic Orthodox Christians um, in in ways that uh, are are somewhat 
unfamiliar to us today in our uh, in our lives and in our culture. And we just pray that we'll be encouraged by this and that we will uh, learn from it and be motivated, Father, to pursue you personally on a deeper and more authentic way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Um, something in your prayers reminded me that, uh, like, sometimes you hear people say that uh, Christianity is, like, you know, the dominant religion. And uh, part of what, yeah, I was trying to, what we've been trying to show in the first several weeks of this is what it looked like when Christianity wasn't. Um, when, what it looked like for Christianity to be a religion where they held no political power. Um, and of course, that looked really different in the ancient world than in the modern world. But this is what it looks like for Christians who, you know, are faithful um, in, in times of really intense struggle um, and no recourse uh, to government, right? No recourse to say, um, you know, how can, how can you help us do this? Like the social change in a way that Christians brought about um, was all done, you could almost say, from the ground up, uh, right? So like, I mean, we think about, um, like I said, the one week, you know, one of the charges against Christians was it was the religion of women, children, um, and, and sort of foolish people. Um, and that, uh, but, but, you know, they made change um, without changing laws, right? Um, the laws were the same. They were the Roman laws. But slowly and surely, um, you know, Christians were always the ones found rescuing babies from hills. Um, Christians were the ones who were going to the lepers. Christians were the ones who were going to the women, or, you know, were including women um, in their services. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it's a really remarkable way that Christians uh, sort of in these first three centuries, despite, um, you know, many exiles. We talked about the exile of Athanasius. We're going to talk about exile today with uh, Cyril of Alexandria um, and then persecution on, on a, you know, on the scale of death. Um, despite all of this, um, some have said that just the simple notion um, that humility is a virtue um, is the, if the effect of Jesus Christ on uh, the world. Um, so, like, I mean, I heard, I, there's a, 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 an ancient historian at Yale, um, and he's, you know, he's, he's an atheist, and he said, the idea that you should love your enemy um, and that you should, uh, you know, consider yourself humble and the meek shall inherit the earth is the most preposterous notion um, to, an, to an ancient uh, culture, to, Ro- to Rome, to Greece, um, to Assyria, to Babylon, to any of these places, might makes right. Um, and the fact that God came into the world as a child um, was so absurd to them um, that it couldn't possibly be true. But slowly, that became how Christians saw themselves. Um, and it's, it really is a remark. Hopefully, some of that is coming out. Um, and as Jesus works in the lives of these people, um, they, they continue this idea that, um, I mean, even uh, Archbishop uh, or um, uh, Athanasius of Alexandria, um, he, uh, you know, he talked a lot about the, that Christians were, you know, first prayed, um, right? That was their first calling was to pray and was to like put aside, um, violence when, when, uh, when at all possible, let's say. I'm not, not going to talk about pacifism writ large, but let's say at the very least, your first instinct as a Christian is how do we pray for this person? How do we love this person? Um, and that's just so anathema to, uh, to their culture and maybe ours too. I don't know, but, um, yeah. So it's, it's a pretty, hopefully that story is coming through a little bit. Um, I wanted to pick up um, a little bit of what we were talking about last week 
uh, this idea of acedia um, and what the one of the sort of get get us into thinking like the desert fathers a little bit um, because they become very important for. Um, Cyril, who we're going to talk about this week, and Augustine, who we're going to talk about next week. Um, you know, whether, uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit about whether or not all Christians uh, should commit themselves to this kind of life. Um, and, and I don't think that that's, you know, um, at least Augustine uh, did not think that that was the calling of everyone. Um, and I don't think that that's what we think today, but we can learn a lot from them. And they believed that a life of prayer um, and a life of um, commitment to uh, worship and, and, and how they saw the world was at least important for encouraging young theologians and young pastors. Like Pat, like, and so uh, Athanasius went out to learn from um, Anthony the Great. Um, Cyril learned from other of the Desert Fathers. And so these people who change uh, the world Part of their growth, you could say, a part of their spiritual growth happened because they spent time in communities of prayer. Um, and so that was sort of the soil um, that nurtured their um, commitment to Christ in the face of danger. Um, so, you know, one of the, um, one of the early um, monasteries in Italy was called um, the Academy, uh, well, it's actually the Academy of Avaria. I went to a variation of it um, in a weird way. But um, it means the place of um, growing things. Um, and they thought that the monasteries were places where people grew, um, grew spiritually, grew intellectually, um, and grew in the things that mattered most. Um, and so people would come, they would study there, they would grow, they would learn, they would change, they would become more like Christ. Um, and then they would go out and pursue uh, whatever they were called to in the world. That wasn't everyone, but that was some. Um, and so I think that's a pretty remarkable thing to remember, that, that, that monasteries were safe places where people could go um, and just for a while feel um, close to God. I mean, it, it's, in, in its own way, it was true in my own life. I spent some time at a monastery in France um, that really changed my perspective on what it meant to be a Christian. Um, and, uh, you know, this idea that, um, like, Christianity is about an encounter with God. Um, and that's what, um, hopefully that comes through. You know, we talk about praying for the Holy Spirit to come um, in, in our teaching. And, and uh, Augustine says that Christ is our inner teacher. Christ is always teaching us through the Holy Spirit. Um, and so part of what we're doing now is, like, I'm introducing you to other ideas, but Augustine thought that this was only the first step. Um, anything that you learn in the classroom-style setting or from another person is only the first step. It's only trying to redirect you to say, now go pray. Uh, now go read scripture on your own. Now go um, and engage with this um, more. Um, this is only the beginning, right, for, for these people. Um, all right, that's probably enough by way of introduction. Uh, <laughs> Acedia, the noonday demon. Uh, so we talked, I, I think I read this verse, but uh, you, uh, so on, in Psalm 91, it says, You need not fear the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. So um, the monks realized quickly that it was really hard to pray continually. Um, and so we talked about the Jesus prayer a little bit, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me as sinner. That was one way that they, uh, they would pray this prayer so many times. Um, and then uh, they felt like their heart 
became uh, at prayer constantly. Uh, but it also got boring. Um, so acedia is something like boredom. Um, it's something, it, it, it was equated with sloth at various points. Um, again, I'm trying to suggest that that's not really what it's about. It's not just being lazy. It's just like, look, it's really hard if you think that you're supposed to pray all the time. Or I don't know if you, I, I feel this way a little bit. Um, sometimes like prayer groups are really hard for me. Um, and I, <laughs> and I, you know, I get a little bit of boredom and then I feel bad about myself and then I'm like am I not really holy enough am I not really spiritual enough Um, what's wrong with me Um, and in some ways this is sort of what acedia calls out it says yeah sometimes you have to work through that Um, sometimes that's part of and it doesn't mean that you don't love God it doesn't mean that you're um, you know that you're not a Christian um, but it might mean something that you have to work through and so they the the monks realized that this happened most often at lunch um, you would you would eat your lunch and you'd get full um, and Italians and Spaniards uh, take siesta um, and that was maybe one way to deal with the noonday demon I guess uh, but uh, but Abba, Abba Anthony that is Anthony the Great uh, the first great monk he says um, so this is a story from the um, the Desert Fathers from that uh, we read a little I think we might have even read this section but uh, it comes from the the sayings of the Desert Fathers. Um, when Abba Anthony lived in the desert, he was beset by Assyria um, and attacked by many sinful thoughts. He said to God, Lord, I want to be saved. Um, and I think we could think about this word, not saved as in, I want to make the first step to become a Christian. But um, in Greek and in Latin, the word for salvation is also the word for wholeness. I want to be healthy. Um, so we, maybe we think about him saying, I want to be healthy. I want to have a healthy approach to this. Um, uh, So, Lord, I want to be healthy in my spirituality, but these thoughts do not leave me alone. I'm I'm bored. (laughs) Um, What shall I do in my affliction? How can I become healthy again? A short while afterwards, when he got up to go out, Anthony saw a man like himself sitting in his work, getting up from his work to pray, then sitting down and braiding a rope, then getting up again to pray. It was an angel of the Lord sent to correct and reassure him. He heard the angel saying to him, do this and you will be saved. At these words, Anthony was filled with joy and courage. He did this, and he was saved. <laughs> so reading the sayings of the Desert Fathers, I think, is a little bit like, uh, have you ever heard the old uh, like Tibetan uh, um, like, uh, aphorism, the sound of one hand cla- what's the sound of one hand clapping? Um, and it's sort of this like, I don't, you know, what, I don't know, how do you, you know, what, is that, what does that mean? How am I supposed to do that? Um, I think sometimes the sayings of the Desert Fathers are a little bit like that. They're a little bit obscure. They're a little bit difficult. Um, So I'll just ask you, what do you think Anthony learned from this? Why did he rejoice at this saying? I I think it's the the going to work and then returning to prayer, going to work and returning to prayer, is that even in work you have prayer. Okay. And even in prayer you have work. Okay. And so there's this ebb and flow of the two. Yeah. Rather than trying to push through and just concentrate on prayer. Okay, good. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty good. Any, anybody else have other thoughts on what he, what he might have learned from this? Can't you, can't you be, um, no matter what you're doing, in a posture of prayer? Okay. Like, available to God as you work and uh-huh. sometimes I, I guess I'm saying the same thing you're saying yeah. really, and sometimes 
you separate yourself apart for a different level of prayer. Uh-huh. But I think it's possible, especially when the Holy Spirit lives within you. You're sort of always, no matter what you're doing, available to God. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I mean, maybe slightly different. Maybe I, I said is the, the guy got up, did something else, and killed the boredom, and then went back to the game. Yeah. Um, and so maybe that's okay. To get up and go, yeah. Yeah, it's okay. You you really don't have to. I mean, I don't know Mm -hmm. whether that's okay or not, but that's that's a possible interpretation of why he was happy. Oh, well, I've seen seen this vision. In the vision, the person like me gets up and goes and does something else to break the boredom. So that's okay. I'm really happy. (laughs) Yeah. Because I can do that now, too. I don't have to power through. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say, I would think it would be uh, encouraging just that. Say a prayer like this, and this angel of the Lord shows up and, mm. you know, says something to you. I mean, acknowledges the prayer. Yeah. You know, I mean, you have this sense of God is listening, and you know, yeah. that's cool. I'm not really sure what to make of this, but at least, you know. Yeah. You know, there was a response. Yeah. God, just appeared and hit me with This is what I said, which is amazing. I was thinking also, like, for me, I struggled with like a lot of obtrusive thought growing up, mm-hmm. and it was also encouraging reading a lot of the, uh, the ancient struggle that as well. Like, am I possessed, possessed by? Well, sometimes, like, am I possessed by a demon? I yeah, think that's possible, but that's like how intense this feels. So maybe instead of like, um, and for me, learning about meditative prayer helps. So it's not about stopping your thoughts, mm-hmm. but like directing them to mm-hmm. something else. Yep. Um, so instead of trying to force yourself to stop these thoughts, like just go towards prayer or yep. go towards work. Like you can. Yeah. 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 Sometimes the best uh, like um, encouragement that I've had in prayer is the Holy Spirit intercedes with groans for us. Like something when I don't know what to pray, um, you know, the idea that the Holy Spirit can pray through us, um, and so uh, that's that's part of the idea. Like so, the, a lot of the Desert Fathers encouraged kind of re- repetitious prayers, which feel. Um, to some people, feel inauthentic uh, or something, but uh, for them, it was a way to say, I'm connecting my prayer to that which uh, uh, Christ taught me to pray in the Lord's Prayer, that which has been the prayer of David, right? So the Psalms were central for them. Um, Connecting myself to a tradition of prayer so that I join with the communion of saints in one voice, right? So you're not alone in your prayer. So sometimes saying prayers that have been prayed for millennia um, is a way to make yourself one with the church throughout the ages. Um, And so you don't feel like you are just alone making up the things that you have to say, um, but you are at one with the whole church. Um, And so so, like that's kind of like some of the idea of using set prayers. um, That's a little bit of where it comes from. Um, and uh, there's a we're going to talk about this in a minute um, too with St. Cyril of Alexandria but there's another sort of idea in um, some of the church fathers Uh, they say that as one prays so one believes Um, and the idea was that when you go to church um, the the liturgy the, the form of worship the prayers that you pray the songs that you sing the sermons that you hear they shape you um, into how you think um, and into how you uh, believe um, and so uh, it was uh, part of the reason you go to church isn't necessarily to um, as one theologian said have your beliefs expressed um, <laughs> but is to have your beliefs shaped 
Um, and so the reason that we do things, the reason that we sing songs that Martin Luther wrote or Charles Wesley wrote or John Wesley wrote and these people is to be shaped by the words that have been uh, sung by Christians for generations. Um, and we continually read the, uh, the Psalms as our introduction uh, because those are the words that God gave to David that Christ said while he walked on earth. And there's a way in which using Christ's words, using David's words actually brings us even closer um, to God uh, than than maybe just coming up with it on our own, um, and I mean again, I'm not like I'm not saying that there can't be both. Uh, we can do both of these, but just that was the the sort of wisdom of the desert was like sometimes it's just as powerful to rely on words that have been used for for many uh, many generations. Um, I'm on the worship planning team and ha- help think about service planning, so this is uh, near and dear to my heart uh, as well, but. Um, all right, so um, Acedia, uh Oh, yeah, go ahead. Huh? Kind of along those lines of like, I feel like a move in the past 15, 20 years in America has been towards songs that repeat themselves mm-hmm. a ton. Mm-hmm. And I personally am not a fan. Yeah. Um, is there. What is the value of repeating, like, yeah. I'm blanking on a song. I can sing of your love forever. Yes. That's exactly what I'm thinking because it changes the word forever. Like, yeah. yes, we are going to sing yeah. this song forever. Just like, yeah. It repeats that, like, ten times yep. in, the, in the, the verse. Um, but often it doesn't really t- give verses about, like, how great God's love is, sure. and why we could sing about his love, mm-hmm. and it kind of seems a bit fluffy and mm-hmm. not a lot of meat. Yep. Um, so, thoughts? yeah, no, fa- fair enough. Um, I, so part of, I, I think we should think about the content of those phrases. I could sing of your love forever. Um, you know, not a bad thing, but at some point you forget who's the you and what does that love mean? And, you know, we need to put it into a context. Um, uh, N.T. Wright, if you're familiar, he talks about the deconstructed worship. So if we don't also tell the gospel in the sermon, um, if we don't also put this within the scope of, like we do confession and absolution, if we don't put these things within the scope of the Christian story, which says that God created, God redeems, and God restores, if we don't put it in this larger scope of the Christian story, um, then it, eventually those repeated phrases just sort of spiral off into meaninglessness. Um, so I think part of it should be where that song is that situated. Um, I don't particularly love that song. The kind of songs that I have repeated, uh, so where I was at a monastery where we sang um, some repetitive songs, and what they were meant to do is usually they were scriptural quotations. Um, so I think that it's important to rely on scripture um, when, when we can. Um, and what they thought that it did, uh, the posture was different. It wasn't trying to generate an emotion. Um, it was trying to calm the mind. Um, and so I think what the intention of the words are and where they come from matters. Um, so the one that um, I was thinking of, 
I am sure I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Yes, I am sure that I shall see the goodness of our God. Hold firm trust in the Lord. Um, So that's one song. And we would sing this for two or three minutes. um, And the idea was you use songs to calm you, um, to make you not feel emotion almost, um, to get you settled. Um, and then you had time for, si- and then we would move into a time of silence. Um, and so it was a, it was bringing things down um, into a settled place um, rather than ramping them up, uh, which is sometimes how I think we use worship. So I think how how songs and words are used makes a big difference in addition to the content of those words. Um, so I, I think there is a place for repetition, um, but I think we have to be careful about how we use it. Um, and on the contrary, I love that I sing Charlie. I, so I try to sing my son's songs uh, from the hymnals. And, you, and if you think about it like uh, even just amazing grace has like eight verses uh, in its original form but they're the steps of the christian life you become a christian you realize how grace taught this to you you go through many dangers toils and snares you struggle um and then christ brings you back um, and then you think about heaven right so some of these old great hymns like in each song they walk you through so many different things Going through amazing grace. Oh yeah, there you go. Yeah, and so I think you know, so I think those are great gifts to us as well um, that we should not ignore. Uh, and those don't necessarily have a refrain like I could sing of your love forever. Um, yeah. Just something I was thinking about, and you know, this this can be dangerous if applied to a lot, but different things appeal to different people, mm-hmm. and you know, some people might. You know, might not necessarily go, enjoy going real deep. This particular Bible study, it goes real deep <laughs> into history. Some people might not like that. Um, and they can be virtuous Christians, and they either, it may just not be of interest, or uh, perhaps they can't even comprehend it. Um, and so I, I if, think... What that's, about the Paul's verse of like, I, I long for you to eat meat and yeah. not like the milk. lie on sounds. milk. I don't, yeah. think, I don't think they're inherently, I mean, yeah, I think there's a difference between yeah. repeating something and if a song has, like, deeper theology, that's the, not, those are completely separate issues. Yeah. Like, I think a lot, I mean, a lot of gospel songs, it's a lot of repeat, like, one song I think has, like, one, I can't remember what I was thinking the other day, but it's just repeating, or there's a Michael W. Smith song lately, like, um, when I feel like I'm surrounded, I'm surrounded by you. But yeah, I love that song. Anyway, but like for me, I don't know. I I, I get very like meditative and prayerful. I just like yeah, it says like you know to meditate on the word. Day yeah, yeah. And some people might well, say that's even the Jesus deeper. Prayer. Like yeah, it's like so. It's not about depth or whatever. But for me, it's yeah. I like I don't know. I'm, it's very much. I, I feel I can get to. I, well, I love basically all worship, but. So, uh, for me, sometimes I get distracted. Mm-hmm. Like Amazing Grace, I've heard a lot of times. I sort of like am singing it, but not really thinking about it. Yeah. Because if I'm repeating something, I like have to remember and kind of meditate on it and think about it and I'm communing with God more. So I think yeah. it kind of to this to both sides of this this discussion, it's, it's possible to enjoy both equally. Yeah. yeah. Irrespective of how you typically and engage. Both with, can be with, deep with, and yeah. both can be yeah. surface level depending on yeah. how I, you're engaging. I think I think casting these into kind of black and white categories where like a quote unquote certain type of Christian likes one and a quote unquote certain type of Christian likes another is not actually that helpful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're up for um, a 
four stanza hymn. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the worship songs lately, come, like, contemporary ones, can be kind of vague and stuff. Well, I find myself pulling out. You know, after the yeah, the tenth time, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna pray on my own right now because I can't. I can't mean this the twentieth time. Yeah. You know, and that's a, a personal thing. Yeah. But again, I was raised where you know. We're not going to sing the third verse? What happened? <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't know if anybody knows what I'm talking about. Oh, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Conversely, like, my, so my fiancé, Kevin, like, really enjoys their kind of songs because for him it's a platform to then, like, kind of express the spirit in his own way and he doesn't necessarily sing the repeating part but kind of riffs because he's, you know, musical and, and that's how I prefer to worship as well but mm-hmm. there's not really space for that in how we do our services currently. And so it's really just, like, there's always, like, different ways that people worship just as there's different walks with God. And so, like, for some people, certain types of music or certain types of prayer are really meaningful. And then there's wisdom, as you said, wisdom to be found in all these different sorts of traditions. Um, and it's, it's a matter of kind of growing yourself and challenging yourself to do something new and also finding what, what sings to your spirit. Um, so. Yeah. I think that's I think great. It's accessible for everyone. You know, yep. what we do, you can come in and have never been at church and and join in. Yeah, there's definitely that's a that's part that is good. Yeah. This, this is definitely the, the struggle of being in the worship planning team. Um, is how do we balance all of this stuff? We are always trying to balance um, depth and uh, sort of accessibility and breadth uh, and, you know, um, going deeper and all these sorts of things. So, yeah, I mean, this is definitely, <laughs> this is definitely hard. Um, and I'm thankful that the church is large um, in that sense as well, right? So you can, if you want to go deeper, there are ways that you can go deeper. If you, you know, you need an access point, though, right? The gospel is for the world. Um, and so we have to, you know, that... I'm not, uh, I, you know, I, of course, I love the deeper things uh, as well, you know, but um, but trying to keep in mind, like, this is also the church of um, my son who doesn't really say anything yet, um, but will be a child. So what can he understand? Or my father, my grandmother, like, I mean, this is, you know, church for the generations. And, you know, that can, you know, how do we how do we hold something together um, so that we have a core, Jesus Christ, um, the gospel, salvation? How do we have something that's that makes it meaningfully Christian, um, but that's also accessible? And this is a great struggle. Um, but uh, we're going to keep pressing forward. Uh, I appreciate the conversation. Um, so these are just a couple quotes on Acedia, but I'm gonna, uh, I wanted to jump, jump down to this last one. Um, because, so if, if any of you are aware, G.K. Chesterton is a famous um, uh, English theologian, uh, kind of predecessor, if you like, to C.S. Lewis in a certain way. C.S. Lewis enjoyed his writings. But he says, perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. Um, it is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies seem alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately but never has, has never gotten tired of making them. Um, and I think this is a beautiful quote, but the idea is I think that we can, part of what we're trying to do with prayer um, and then what we're trying to explain in the creeds and theology are in, in a sense the same thing. We're trying to contemplate and become like God. Um, and if our goal is to think about God and become like God and especially become like Jesus Christ, God incarnate, um, 
we want to become the kind of per- people that can delight in something like a daisy. We want to become the kind of people that can delight in a certain kind of monotony, but it's not natural to us. We have, a, you know, we have acedia. We have, we do struggle with this. Um, and, you know, so there's a sense in which we can learn something even about God um, in something as simply repetitive as um, the setting of the sun and the rising of the sun, right? Um, and so I think, you know, I think part of what, I, I like that quote just because it says um, something, um, at least uh, to me, meaningful about, uh, about God. Um, anyway, that's from his uh, book, Orthodoxy, if you're interested in something else that's uh, heavy and fun. Uh, but he's, he's kind of, uh, he's, uh, he's got a sort of good sense of humor, so it's at least enjoyable. All right, uh, Cyril of Alexandria. So this is the, the figure that I wanted to get to today. Um, so... We have another guy who's of Alexandria. Whenever you see um, someone referred to by their place, usually it refers to where they like, did most of their ministry. So we'll talk about Augustine of Hippo. He wasn't born in Hippo, uh, but that was where he did his ministry. So we have another person in Alexandria. We've talked about Mark. We've talked about uh, Athanasius. Um, now we're talking about Cyril. All of these people served primarily in Egypt, um, Cyril, as I have said, spent time uh, in the monastery. We talked about the importance of that. Um, Cyril uh, faced a lot of opposition uh, in his life to the way that he understood um, the relationship between Christ's divinity and humanity. Um, at one point, forced out of his church, he was anathematized. That is, he was considered um, um, sort of a... I don't know what's the right phrase here. He, well, he was unable to serve in his church. Um, and so the, the emperor did not like um, his idea. So he said, okay, you are no longer officially um, considered the head of this church. Um, and so he fa- faced some opposition, um, and, but he stuck to his guns, um, as did Athanasius, uh, as did the early Christians. So this is, a, this, again, this strength um, of, of these African Christians in the face of opposition. Um, and so, so Cyril, um, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, details of his life that I'm not going to spend uh, as much time on, uh, but I like, again, thinking about these individual people and what they went through um, to uh, help us think about Scripture um, and be faithful to um, and understanding that Christ was fully divine and fully human. That was... Uh, we're going to talk about how Alexand- uh, how uh, Cyril explained that. Um, for uh, for those who are interested, um, his opponent, as as it were, uh, was Nestorius, um, and so you may have heard of Nestorian Christians, um, but uh, yeah, there there are not many. Uh, but um, anyway, Nestorius is the um, is the sort of opposition. Um, but I, I think in his own way, Nestorius was also a Christian, but Nestorius tried to explain this in a way that the church basically uh, ultimately like, decided was not how we were going to explain it. Um, because part of what we're dealing with uh, is, of course, true theology um, is the study of God, and that is trying to understand God and God's self. Um, and that is a difficult task. Um, and so what we're ultimately going to find 
is that what Cyril did is like what happened in Nicaea, um, which is we can think of it as like a, a fence. Um, and it was sort of like the Christians, uh, the creeds, part of what they're trying to do isn't tell us exactly who God is, as in this is definitively the case um, that we know perfectly God um, because we are humans. We are finite. Um, we are unable to say exactly who uh, God is, but we need to say something. Um, and we should say it well, um, and we should respond to how God has revealed God's self to us in the scriptures um, and in Jesus Christ, right? So whatever we're going to say, it must be um, formed, shaped, um, and um, directed by scripture, right? Um, and so uh, so that's uh, what Cyril's going to try to do. So there's going to be a little bit of, um, it, it, so this is going to get abstract, um, if you like, um, I, you know, uh, I was just reading something uh, on my Twitter, actually, uh, but it was from a 19th century, like, Dutch theologian. Um, but he said, uh, theology and Trinitarian theology is useless, uh, but that's exactly as it should be. Um, <laughs> and because true theology is meant to take us out of the mundane matters and rise us up to something that's beyond us. Um, and so what, what Cyril was trying to do was say, how do we hold in the, on the one hand that God is totally other from us? God is the ground of being. God is the one who created the things, not the thing created. God is separate. We need God to be beyond this world in order to save this world world. Um, we know that God created and God created creation separate. We're not pantheists as Christians. We don't believe that God is in all things um, or God is all things. We believe that God is separate um, and that's exactly as it should be. But then the great gospel is that that God who was separate came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ to deliver the world from its sin. Um, and from the effects of sin, right? So it's this difficult task of maintaining on the one hand God's otherness um, and God's likeness. Uh, and if I think, you know, what we could say that a lot of uh, recent theology has focused on how like us God is. The problem with that is we end up making God in our own image. Um, we end up saying that, oh, well, God's just like us. Um, what's that? Jesus is my homeboy, yeah. Um, Um, but the problem is if we've made God in our own image how can that God save us right if the God is just simply us um, then it's our own projections um, that it's our own wishful thinking Um, but again this is a difficult task um, because we do want to say that God was fully human uh, but but not only fully human in the sense that there wasn't also divi- you know he wasn't also divine um, and so this is this is the hard task I I think I've said this before but I like to define theology as speaking well of God and acting well for God right so the two tasks of theology are uh, a contemplative you know looking up um, and also an active going out and doing things so I don't want to say uh, that doing things in the world and spreading God's word and you know serving people is not part of um, good theology but we also have to make sure that we're serving God um, and that we're talking about God uh, correctly so that's what we're going to try to do so it's going to get a little abstract uh, but but I think uh, but I think it's trying to pull us out of ourselves. It's trying to get us to um, realize that, that we are people created uh, for a perfect world and we're not in a perfect world. So it's, it's drawing us out a little bit. 
um, which I, I think is is a good thing. All right, so I've I've been trying to think about how to <laughs> how to get get find a way into this conversation. As I've already stated, it's kind of abstract. But what the what the theologians were trying to do in the so we're in the fifth century. I gave you some dates up here. So uh, most of this conversation is happening uh, in the early four hundreds. Uh, so we're about 400 years after Christ, um, but the Christians were trying to say, how is Jesus human and how is Jesus God? Um, well, in order to say that, we need to say, what does it mean to be human? Uh, what does it mean to be God? So I'm going to open up this question um, and we're going to think about it for a second. What, what does it mean to be human? So if, G- if God is going to take on all the characteristics of humanity, what is a human? Finite. Finite, yeah. So that's a big one for God to have to overcome. The infinite has to become finite. Kind of on a related note, temporal. Temporal, yeah. So we think God is is, uh, beyond time, right? Jesus was uh, generated before time. Physical. uh, Okay, so human is something physical, but God is something immaterial, um, transcendent, yeah. Yeah, on the physical part, I was thinking like dependent. As humans, we... Need to eat. We need okay. to sleep. We need. We need. We need things. We're, we're perpetually needy. Yeah. Limited. Limited. Yeah. What are we made of? Dust. <laughs> dust. Yeah. Water. 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 Dust. Yeah. Um. Okay. Uh. Here's a fun one. What's the difference between a spirit and a soul? <laughs> are you talking about in a platonic sense? Or <laughs> Right? I mean, so we have to get through all these things. There was one guy uh, called Apollinaris who said, well, what it meant that God became incarnate was, uh, well, we just, uh, God just sort of put a human uh, mind and sort of, uh, well, not, he wouldn't have said soul, but he said mind. He put, a, a, a put his mind in a human body. Um, and then the, the theologians all thought about it for a minute and they said, well, wait a minute. Um, then he wasn't fully human, right? So he didn't have a human mind. He had a divine mind. Um, and then that would not be enough like us to save us, right? So he wouldn't actually know what it was like to have a human mind, right? So there are, a, you know, so we've had, any, anybody else, what is, a, what is a human? So, okay, this is good. This is important, right? Made in God's image. With, God speaking of wit, of what? The image of the Father, the Son, or the Spirit? Well, they're all God. So. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think we're supposed to be conformed now to the image of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. But that. But this. So this is. This is why this gets complex, right? We're entering into it a little bit. Yeah. So I think usually the church fathers would say we are made in the image of God, as in the Son. We're made in the image of of Christ. Um, and so, um, yeah, that that's good. But this is this is right. So so the church fathers said, okay, we need to read Genesis one. We need to read John one. We talked a little bit about Psalms. Uh, Jesus set, has these sayings. Uh, about uh, I and the Father are one. There's a unity uh, to to God and to Jesus, right? So they're reading the scriptures. They see God acting in the Old Testament. They see God fully present in Jesus Christ, and they try to say, how are they both? 
Um, and so we have things like First John, uh, the beginning of First John. I can't remember how it all goes, uh, but it's this like uh, I probably should read it. But it's it's like uh, John goes to great lengths to say we know that he was human. Um, like we're not going to deny that Jesus was uh, was human. And so uh, he's it goes to great pains to say we saw him, we interacted with him. He was here. Yeah, that's right. Uh, at the end of John, for sure, and at uh, different points, but also at the end. Yeah, um, he ate with us. Um, he was human as we are human. Uh, but how, how are we going to get to also God, also human? That's what the theologians are trying to explain. Um, so what does it mean to be human? Uh, mind, soul, body, spirit, I ask these questions. Yeah, so in a platonic sense, um, I, I don't know what the uh, uh, scientists in the room, how they are going to feel about some of this. But yeah, I mean, generally speaking, Christians have affirmed there is some kind of soul thing and there is some kind of body thing. Um, so there is some sort of thing that um, engages in the world beyond the physical um, and also in the physical. All right, so uh, they call these things soul uh, and body. Interestingly enough, the word for spirit uh, is the word for wind, breath, um, and what we would say as the Holy Spirit. So in some sense, a lot of times, the, the most appropriate word when speaking about the human uh, person uh, is to be soul and body. Spirit is actually what we think about um, when we think about the Holy Spirit. Um, and so uh, God breathes into Adam uh, the Ruach in Hebrew, and it makes him a living being. Um, and in a sense, when we receive the Holy Spirit, we're receiving that living breath again. Um, and so because of sin, we lost the holy living breath of God. Um, that is, that would make us incorruptible, that would make us last forever. That bit uh, is, is that is our punishment. We lose um, the, at the total um, uh, or the uh, complete um, human unending um, joy of being with God, uh, but the Holy Spirit returns that to us. That is God remaking us. The, the Nicene Creed says that the Holy Spirit is the one who makes us alive again. Um, and so that's what we believe as Christians. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It, it reconnects us to um, the divine. Um, and of course, uh, like I say, I know all of this is a little bit abstract, but this is, uh, this is important, right? Um, and uh, so so that's what it means to be human. What does it mean to be God? Mm-hmm. All powerful. All powerful. So we could go, so, sometimes uh, when I was in philosophy, we talked about the three O God. Um, and that is omniscient, or well, you said all powerful. Omnipotent, omniscient, uh, omnipresent. Uh, well, yeah, so omnipresent, and then maybe omnibenevolent. That's, now we're getting into more O's, but I don't, I can't, now I'm trying to remember. I think in philosophy, usually uh, this one either goes, is sort of part of these, but yeah. So sometimes in philosophy, you talk about these things, other things that might mean to be God. So, oh, these are all sort of Latin-ish words, power, uh, all power, all knowing, all present. Present uh, and all good. Creator. Okay, creator. Good. Yeah, so we got creator. Well, I think it's kind of a related but slightly different concept. Sovereign. Sovereign. Okay. Hmm. Good reformed word. 
Your wife must go to Covenant Seminary. <laughs> outside time. Okay, outside time. So something uh, infinite or in outside time. Yeah, so the, the ancients believed there was something different between uh, being uh, eternal and being everlasting, right? So you said eternal, which is the right word. Humans might be everlasting in the sense that, uh, you know, we will, the Christians will dwell forever with God. We, we last ever, but we have a beginning. Um, so there's a difference between everlasting and eternal. Um, theologians love a good distinction. <laughs> um, so the... Interestingly, we, we, none of us are really good, uh, well, I don't know, ancient uh, theologians or something, or ancient philosophers. Um, <laughs> the things that, that a lot of them talked about would be what, uh, well, you said Plato. You at least mentioned Plato. So um, a lot of them, their understanding of God came from Platonic philosophy. Um, and, I mean, I think that this is also present in Scripture. But these are all things that none of you guys said um, that, they, <laughs> that they were trying to understand. So they were trying to put together the idea that God was impassable. Um, that is, God is unable to change. God is unable to suffer. Um, that he was the, the aseity of God. That God was perfect in God's self. God doesn't need us. Um, God doesn't need anything. God is a simple and in God's self. Uh, God is unable to suffer. <laughs> so this is a big one. How is it that God becomes incarnate in Jesus Christ and suffers? Um, and uh, and dies. How does God die on the cross? Yeah. Because it multiple times says he was grieved in his mm -hmm. spirit. Isn't that a form of suffering? <laughs> yeah. Well, it also says God repents too, right? And that gets sort of weird. Um, yeah. <laughs> There's mystery, there's anthropology, yeah, sometimes, yeah, 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 but yes, I mean, yeah, so sometimes those are called anthropomorphisms, this is God um, accommodating God's self to us, um, and so there's a sense in which God will speak in human terms, but God and God's self, um, uh, yeah, presumably does not repent, um, but uh, yeah. Because the thing that I always think about with this that is, like, something that's completely unterpretable to people is how you know Jesus is fully human and fully fully God was both eternal and temporal at the same time. Yeah. Like I don't think that we can actually really conceive of, of what, what that means or, or yeah. what it looks like. Yeah. Yeah, but it's this, go ahead. This doesn't work real well, but I was thinking he sort of he sort of put his godliness on pause for a while to be human. Yeah. Although the godliness snuck out a little bit <laughs> yeah. when he did miracles. Yeah. It's like, yeah. So that's kind of a, a strange thing, but it's like being God's put on pause. I'm going to be human. I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to suffer and do all those things. And then when I'm done being human, I'm you know, going to reassume again, those. I'm going to reassume what I want. Yeah. So that would be ancient heresy. But uh, yeah. That would, <laughs> <laughs> but it was it's, so yeah, no, you're fine. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm giving you a little trouble, but no. But they they said somehow God, had, 
what, what would it mean for God to put that on hold? So they said somehow he had to be both. Um, so, so Cyril's answer to your problem. But, so, but, this is, I mean, but this is important. This is what they're trying to do. They're having conversations. So he's writing to Nestorius and saying, hey, Nestorius. So Nestorius kind of took that position. Um, and Nestorius, <laughs> Nestorius doesn't win the conversation. What happened? Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, no, nothing, nothing. Importantly, nothing. There, <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. This is a really important point. There's the Spanish Inquisition is a, a product of the late medieval world, right? So when all of this stuff is going on, no one is being killed. Um, <laughs> no one is being executed. Um, this is uh, like, I mean, this is in some ways an in-house debate. Actually, it's interesting. By even by the time of Muhammad, at first they just said that Islam was an early Christian heresy. Um, they just thought Muhammad was one who wanted to enter the conversation about how Christ was related to God, and they just said, "Oh, well, he's just one of us. He just doesn't have it quite." right um and now again they quickly turned on that but when they first when they first met him they just thought yo you're just having a conversation with us about how this stuff works together and then of course he, he you know denies uh, some important aspects of christ's divinity uh but <laughs> but that's that, but that's an important point right so this is not a you die um because of this um it's just no we don't think that that's consonant with scripture um, and so, yeah, so there's a sense in which so this is called the hypostatic union um, is your big word for the day. Um, and somehow at one in the same time, there is a union in God's being perfectly. So fully is perfectly as in without uh, fault and um, perfectly um, complete, uh, totally complete. Um, somehow Jesus Christ is both. And so his divinity and his humanity are united by one hypostasis, one person, one solid unity. Um, and they say that, that this happens at the same time. So even though um, Christ is born as an infant, um, Augustine in his sermons likes to say um, the unspeaking word became, or the, the uh, eternal word became an unspeaking babe. Um, and at the same time, the creator of his mother and also born by his mother. Um, and so he loves these paradoxes. So his, his uh, nativity homilies are, are beautiful. Um, and, uh, but anyway, yeah, so he loves this paradox. Somehow, um, the thing that is the basis of all that is comes into the world. Um, and so, yeah, we want to be able to say that he's all of these things at once. But it is difficult to parse out in Scripture. Um, is God acting, in a sense, as the divine or as the human? I mean, I tend to think that they also don't make... <laughs> yeah, well, anyway, well, we don't have enough time for that. Uh, so, yeah, so they say... Um, we're more, yeah. <laughs> um, so <laughs> we can do a little bit longer, maybe. Uh, but um, I mean, I, this is I, you know, this is why I get up in the morning is to do this. Uh, but um, so Cyril, these are some quotes by Cyril. So what Christ was by nature, we became by grace. That is perfect. That is um, without flaw or blemish. But it is by the power of grace um, that we become like Christ. Um, one man in two natures without confusion, separation, or division. Um, so, you know, uh, somehow at all times he was both things, uh, divine and human. Um, he also said what was not assumed cannot be saved. So if Christ doesn't take on our mind, for instance, then how does Christ save our mind? If we are not united to the perfect Christ in every aspect of our being, um, down from becoming a baby, you know, nursing, 
bodily functions, all of those things, every bit of our humanity was assumed by Christ um, and, and, or in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, and so, so, so uh, Cyril thinks, you know, what was not assumed cannot be saved. So that's how he has to be all of those things at once. Um, this is the Chalcedonian de- definition, which gets really... Uh, gets really difficult. But anyway, this is just to begin to, and Athanasius said this, which is going to be controversial around here, but God became man so that we may become like God or God. Um, And the the last thing that I will say uh, before we go that's important to think about, uh, for all of these people, uh, what what it means to be perfect, what it means to be complete, and what it means to even be human um, we will never uh, we will never accomplish without grace. So all of us are made in the image of God, right? So all of us are have the dignity of being made like God. But it's because of sin uh, that we that we have an incomplete humanity in a sense. We have there are aspects of us uh, that that want to become fully human, um, and so it is the process of the Holy Spirit at work in us um, making us into the image of Christ. So Christ's full divinity and full humanity is also part of the process of becoming fully human. Um, so it's actually without Christ that we don't even know what it means to be fully human. Um, that, that is the, per, the, the picture of perfection of humanity. Um, and so what is the most complete human life in some sense, the perfect without flaw or blemish? That's Christ. So we look to, at the same time, we can look at Christ as God um, and as the most fully human. Um, and, and, and we can't even become the most fully human except for by grace because of sin, because of the destructive effects of sin. Um, so my, my example that I've used for this before is uh, it's like the Parthenon in ancient Greece, right? Um, it's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing, but it's clearly incomplete. Um, it's clearly destroyed uh, by forces of time and other things. Um, and so you can still see the remnants of its beauty um, and its perfection, uh, or at least according to the Greeks it was. Um, but, but, it's, uh, you know, but it needs to be restored. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in us is restore us to um, the original image which is Christ. That is the pattern, the form, the, the, that, that's what we know. It, it, that is the, the, the perfect example of being human. So it's our job to imitate um, that. All right. Um, yeah, we're going to do, so we're going to do Augustine next week. Um, I may do some more questions on this. We, we can go back to some of this as we get started. Um, and then, and then we're going to move on to Augustine. I think with Augustine, I'm going to try to be, I'm going to try to do something, pivot a little bit, um, and we're going to talk about his sort of personal struggle. He's the most interesting because we have his autobiography, we have his thoughts, um, and we get to see what it was like to get inside the head um, of an ancient theologian. So, thank you all very much. I'm a minute over. <laughs> Thanks for listening to History History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. Uh, Next week, I will be interviewing Dr. Vince Bantu.